Isn't it good to sing how great our God is? Isn't it good to remind our, our hearts, remind your soul that our God is great? He's faithful, true. He knows all. He sees all. Man, we need to be reminded of that. Especially in the midst of this world in which we live. We need to, we need to remember that our God is greater, that, that our God is able. Because this world, this world is nuts, isn't it? And the crazier and the more uncertain things get out there, the more confident you and I need to be about the purpose and the goal for our life, what we're living for. We've got to have that it just so crystal clear in the midst of all that chaos. Yeah, It's nice, isn't it? It's pleasant to wander aimlessly through a garden or a park, just to, to feel the sunshine on your face, to... Uh, to gaze at, at the beauty around you, to feel the, the invigoration of the fresh air. It's great to just wander around. But if you're going out into a war zone, you better know why. And you better be focused on, on what you're doing and how you're doing it. And friends, more and more, this world in which we live it's a war zone. It's a battlefield out there. And those who wander aimlessly become casualties. You and I, we who belong to Christ, we have a purpose for our lives. We have a calling that God has put upon us. We have a task that he has given us to accomplish. And we are not to just wander through this life, just, just looking to amuse ourselves. Nor are we to pull back and to abandon this lost and dying world to the enemy who wants to destroy it. We have a mission. We have a mission that is larger than our individual lives. So we can't barricade ourselves into our fortresses and just hunker down in isolation. We can't just wander around aimlessly looking to be entertained. No, we have an objective that is important enough to cause us to enter into the battlefield. And that's what Luke 16 has been all about. And from beginning to end, that, that's where Jesus started and that's where he's going to end in this chapter. Here in Luke 16, he is calling us, he is calling all those who would follow him to give ourselves without reserve to the task that he's given us. He's asking us to live our lives for it. What more do you have than to give your life? That's everything, right? 
That's the sum of it all, of your stuff and your time and yourself. It's, it's your life. And, and this is what Jesus is asking, is that we would live our lives for the objective that he has given us to accomplish. That was the message that he gave in that first section of, uh, of chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Remember that, the, that weird parable, uh, the parable of the crooked manager, talking about this guy who lived his now in light of his what's next, and Jesus calling us to live this life in light of and for the benefit of eternity. And then when the religious leaders began to mock the message that he gave, he rebuked them. That's what we looked at last week in verses 14 through 18. And he rebuked them. And now in this final section of Luke 16 in verses 19 through 31, once again, Jesus calls us to account. And he warns us that that those who live for the stuff of this, this life, that they will get to the end and they will find that everything they've gained will turn to cobweb and ashes and slip from their grasp. That we're not to live for this life, but we're to live for eternity. Let's, let's read our passage together, shall we? Open your Bibles, Luke chapter 16. Find verse 19, and I invite you to stand. I'll read the passage. I, I, I ask you, follow along. Follow along in your own Bible so you can see what it says. Beginning in verse 19, Jesus is speaking. Luke says, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table. But instead, dogs would come and lick his sores. One day, the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, Remember that during your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there come over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, father, Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, 
they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father, again, as we do every week, we ask you to teach us, to prepare our hearts, to allow us to receive what it is that you would speak. And Lord, beyond that, to, to understand it, to comprehend it, to embrace it. Lord, to allow you to work it into reality in our lives. Father, we want to be changed by what we read. We want your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives and to, to shape us because of it. For that to work, Lord, we need you to, to remove our resistance. Lord, to take down for us those defenses that we have built up to protect our, our little idols of life. God, I pray that we would hear from you this morning. You would speak to us personally and individually, specifically. Lord, that you would work in the midst of this time. We give it to you, Lord. We ask you to do it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. There are some really interesting questions, aren't there, that this passage stirs up? And you read this and you begin to, to, to wonder, well, okay, so what actually happens when we die? I mean, how does that all work? Or, or, or you read it and you think, wow, so exactly what is hell like? Well, in the midst of those ancillary, important but not the main point issues, there are really side issues here. I, I don't want us to lose track of what the main issue is, what the point is that Jesus is making uh, by saying what he says here to these religious leaders. We've got to remember uh, what the situation is that Jesus is speaking into. We've got to remember when and to whom Jesus is speaking. Uh, let's remember the context. He has just challenged his followers to live their lives in the now for the benefit of the kingdom of God, to invest uh, their this world assets into eternity. At which point the Pharisees who loved money, they began to mock him. They were using this life. They were losing their, using their positions of spiritual leadership in order to gain money, in order to gain power, in order to gain pleasure in this life. They were living now for now. And so they began to mock Jesus in this call to live now for eternity. So the message that Jesus is conveying here isn't, well, here's what hell is like or here's what happens when you die, but rather here's what happens if you live your life the way that you guys are living it. That's what he's saying to these Pharisees. If you continue to live for this world and for this life, instead of pouring all that you are and all that you have into God's kingdom, this will be the unexpected end result. Because really, that is not what they expected. 
this parable for them has an amazing twist to it. Well, let's begin to take a look at it. To the Pharisees who in verse 14 we read loved money, Jesus says in verse 19, there was a rich man. There was a rich man who would dress in purple, fine linen, and feasted lavishly every day. And now the, the rich man here obviously clearly is a picture of the Pharisees. He, he's basically telling a story and saying, well, there's you, okay? There's you. There's a rich guy dressed really nice who eats really well, and the Pharisees all would have gone, oh, that's us. Because you see, they didn't see that as a negative. They didn't see that as something that they, they should maybe be bashful about, but rather they saw that as God's stamp of approval upon their lives. They saw their wealth and their luxury as God's favor and approval upon the way that they were living. The counterpoint to the rich man was the wretched man named Lazarus. Look at verse 20. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate, and he longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table. He just wanted the scraps. No, but he didn't get the scraps. Instead, the dogs, the stray dogs would come and lick at his sores. Now, now, first of all, this Lazarus is not the, the Lazarus who is the brother of Mary and Martha, right? The one whom Jesus raised. Uh, first of all, that Lazarus was not a poor beggar. And second of all, when he died, Jesus raised him back to life. And you know, Lazarus was a very common name in the Hebrew. It would have been Eleazar. It's a name that means helped by God. A very common name in that day. Well, this Lazarus was poor. And he was sick. He was poor enough to need to beg for food. And he was sick enough that he couldn't even fend off the dogs that would come and eat at his sores. As certainly, the Pharisees would have looked at him. And they would have looked at him and they would have thought, here is a man impoverished and sick, begging for food, a man who certainly does not have God's favor or God's approval upon his life. But then, and here's where the twist enters in. Look at verse 22. One day the poor man died. Oh, the fact that he died, that's not the twist. It's what happens next. And he was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. He, this wonderful thing happens for this wretched man. He goes from the bottom to the top. He goes from begging at the, at, at the rich man's gate to being transported by angels into glory to be there by Father Abraham's side. And the rich man also died. And he was buried. <laughs> but then look at the next words. And was in torment in Hades. The one that the Pharisees would have thought had God's approval ends up being the one who did not. You know, it's interesting how our perspective changes our perception of things. Uh, 
how the angle we look at something at from changes our understanding of what it is that is going on. You see, if you view this scene that's laid out before us just from the perspective of this life, the rich man had it all, didn't he? He won. He had it all. He lived in luxury. He enjoyed his life. He was respected in death by a proper burial. And then there's Lazarus, poor, a beggar, lived in poverty. And when he died, very likely his body was just simply discarded without a thought. But then we change our perspective. We change the angle we look at it. And instead of looking at this from the perspective of this life, we cross over into eternity. And we look at this scene from the perspective of eternity. And from there, it all looks very different. This rich man, yes, he enjoyed a brief moment of pleasure. Yes, he was honored by men, but then he entered into an eternity of shame and of torment. Truly, he lost everything. And then there's Lazarus. There's Lazarus. Oh, yes, he did endure a brief moment of poverty and pain, and I'm sure it didn't feel like a brief moment while he endured it. But from the perspective of eternity, it was just it just the briefest of moments, just the, the flutter of an, of an eyelid. And then, and then he was carried away by God's angels to spend all of eternity in glory. We've all seen the video clips, haven't we, of the, the runner who begins his celebration a little too soon before he crosses the finish line and at the last second he's passed by someone. We've all seen the football player running for the end zone who begins his dance, he begins his foolishness, oh, just a few yards too soon, only to have the ball knocked out of his hands and that which started with elation quickly turns into humiliation because they were evaluating things from the wrong side of the goal line. What about us? What about us? How do we measure how our lives are going? How do we measure our lives, our living? How do we measure ourselves? How do we evaluate this life? Uh, do we do it just from this side of the goal line? Uh, do we look at our lives just from what we can see, from what we can perceive of what our future might be, and from what we can remember, and it's getting less and less all the time for some of us, of our past? We, we've just got this brief window and we look at that and we evaluate things just looking at that? Or do we seek somehow to step over into the perspective of eternity? Begin to look at our life, begin to examine 
how it is that we are living now, how it is that we have lived and how it is that we are planning to live in light of not just our past and our present and our possible future, but in light of all of eternity. Do you ever wonder what your life looks like from heaven's point of view? You ever thought about that? I mean, you and I, we live within time and it's understandable that we would, we would view our life basically based upon our past and our present and maybe our fanciful thoughts about what our future might be. But from heaven, from eternity, the Lord looks down. He sees not only our past and our present, he sees our future and he sees beyond death. He sees beyond this life. And he sees our living now in the context of all of eternity. I wonder if from that perspective, my living looks short-sighted. Yeah, we can be short-sighted at times, aren't can't we? I mean, we, we, can, we can in a bad way live for the moment and then have to pay a price for it later. It's like, wow, that was really fun, but it was really stupid and I shouldn't have done that. You know, it's like in the moment, there's, there's something going and, and we live for that moment, but then because we failed to take into account what was coming, man, we pay a price. We look at that and we think, oh, I was short-sighted. I shouldn't have done that. Are we living short-sighted because we are not taking into account the vast expanse of eternity that lies ahead for every last one of us? Do you ever think about that? No matter who you are, no matter whether you believe this or not, you will live for all eternity. Every last one of us will. We are all, every last human being that you have ever met or ever seen, we are all eternal creatures in that sense. God has made us not just for time, but for eternity. And how we live our lives, Jesus is saying, how we live our lives needs to reflect the fact not only that we have a tomorrow, but we have an after this. That eternity for us is something that is inescapable. Well, not only did Lazarus die, the rich man died as well. And being in torment in Hades, it says, verse 23, he looked up. He saw Abraham a long way off and Lazarus there at his side. And, and we read this, and, and of course, we've, we, we've got to wonder, and there is some debate about this, just how literally should we understand the dynamics here of someone who is in Hades being able to see and being able to call out to uh, 
those who are in paradise and, and for them to, to be able to hear and to respond to that person. You know, quite honestly, I see no reason not to take what is said here quite literally. In fact, I would point out that, that Jesus never says that this is a parable or a story. He, he just begins to tell us about these men, about their lives and their destinies. I, I would say that the far stronger argument is that what Jesus says here is history, not story. Well, that being the case, here's what I think we need to understand to be able to process the dynamics that we see taking place here. And here's what we need to understand about how in our era, things are slightly different than they were at the moment in which Jesus shares this information. Well, Jesus begins to talk about those who are in this place called Hades. And Hades is the realm of the dead. It's where those who die go. It's The Old Testament refers to it as the grave or the pit. In Hebrew, it's Sheol. And as we read here, it seems that Hades encompassed two very separate, uh, very different sections. There is the smoking and the non-smoking section, if you will. That wasn't that funny. Uh, one place was a place of torment, right? That's where the rich man ends up, much to his surprise. And the other was a place of great comfort, which is where Lazarus was. Now, understand this, before the cross, at the time that Jesus shares this information, and from the beginning of time until the cross, before the payment was made for God's grace, those who died, having put their faith in God's grace that was yet to come, they found themselves in that place of comfort called Abraham's bosom. And those who died, not having put their faith in God's grace. They found themselves, well, in the other place, in that place of torment. And, and so it's a little bit different now, though, because now Christ has died in our place and he is risen again. And so since that point in history, those who die having put their faith in Christ, they go not to Abraham's bosom, but they go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. That's what Paul talks about. Paul uh, mentions that in, in 1 Corinthians 13 or, five, or 2 Corinthians 5.8, where he talks about being away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So uh, the minute that I depart from this life and I am apart from this physical body, that I am then from that moment on in the presence of, of the Lord. There'll be no waiting for us. It's interesting in, in um, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that on that day when, when we are no longer in this life, that we will be face to face with our Savior. And it may be that in Ephesians chapter four, where Paul is talking, that, and it, he tells us that, that Jesus ascended on high and led a host of captives. It could be that what Paul is talking about there is that Jesus, after the cross, brought all those in Abraham's bosom 
to be with him forever there in heaven. Oh, but those who had not put their faith in God, those who were in that place of torment, they would have been left there. And those who die today, not having put their faith in Jesus, they will still find themselves in that place of torment, that place called Hades. And there they will wait until that day at the end of time when God judges all those who have not chosen to take refuge in Christ. And then on that day, as we read in Revelation, the sea gave up the dead that were in it and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So Lazarus was in a place of comfort. And we know because Jesus very soon after this goes to the cross, very soon after that, he would have been welcomed into, into the Savior's presence in heaven to be there with him forever. But the rich man, the rich man, the one that the Pharisees would have thought would have gone to paradise, the, the rich man instead found himself in a, in a place of torment, awaiting that day uh, when he would be judged by God and cast into the eternal lake of fire. That's what this is about. That's the, the message that Jesus is giving to the Pharisees, he's wanting them to see that things are not going to turn out the way that they think they are. He wants them to see that the outcomes are not what they are expecting. You see, the Pharisees thought that their high positions, their material wealth, their pleasant life, those were all marks of approval from God, signs from God that he approved of them and of their lives. They were tokens of the fact that eventually God would elevate them into paradise. But they were wrong. They were wrong. And so Jesus tells them, change your ways. Quit living for this life. Put your hope in heaven. Surrender yourself to me. Don't live for the stuff of this world or you will end up like the rich man in eternal torment. And then, and then it will be too late. Then there will be no going back. There'll be no do-overs, no second chances. Look at verse 24. The rich man the once rich man cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy. Send Lazarus, just a drop of water for me, please. I'm in agony in this flame, but it's too late. It's too late. Look at Abraham's answer. He says, son, remember that during your life, you received good things just as Lazarus received bad, but now he's comforted and you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, and neither can those from there cross over to us. 
Now, what's clear in what is said there is that it's too late for the rich man to change his fate at that point. That's why Jesus is pleading with the Pharisees. It's not too late for them. It's, it, it, there is no one in this life for which time has expired until they leave this life. But at that point, it is set. It is determined. That much is clear. What might be confusing here is how these two arrived at their fate. You see, nothing is ever said here about the rich man's faith or lack of faith. And nothing is said about Lazarus's faith or lack of faith. All we know is that one was very rich and the other was very poor. Jesus doesn't tell us anything about them. He doesn't tell us how the two interacted or how they lived out their lives. We do know this, though. We do know that Jesus was talking to a group of people, to Jews, who very clearly understood God's law in man's sinfulness. And no doubt, that was the context into which he, he shared this information. These people knew that it was only by, by absolute obedience to God's law and by the offering of sacrifices that anyone could gain God's approval. You and I, we understand that those sacrifices, the, the sacrifices of sheep and goats, that those really, those could not cover our sin. Rather, they were placeholders. They were sacrifices that pointed forward to the one perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who, who takes away the sin of the world. They were pointing to Jesus who died to truly pay the penalty for our sin on our behalf so that both we who put our faith in Christ today looking back in history to the cross and those who put their faith in God before the coming of Messiah looking forward in history towards the cross, we are all saved by the sacrifice of cross. Understand this, salvation is always and only by grace. That's the only way that anyone is ever saved. Please understand very clearly what Jesus is saying here has nothing to do with karma, okay? Erase that thought from your mind. That isn't what he's saying here. He is not saying that, you know, Lazarus was saved because he was poor and the rich man was lost because he was rich. He's not saying rich, bad, poor, good. For goodness sake, consider who is holding and comforting Lazarus. Just the richest man of his generation, Father Abraham. Okay, the whole rich, good, poor, bad does not work in this dynamic. Though it isn't explicitly stated here, we know this, the rich man was lost, not because he was rich, but because he put his hope and his faith in his riches. And Lazarus was saved, not because he was poor, but because in the midst of his poverty, he put his faith and his hope in God. That's the only way anyone ever gets saved, rich, 
or poor. Even Abraham himself was saved by grace. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter four. He says that Abraham believed God, he put his faith in God and it was credited to him for righteousness. In other words, Abraham didn't earn his salvation any more than you or I do, but rather by faith, by grace, he was saved. Well, we see here that the rich man's fate is settled. There's no changing it and no mitigating it. And so his thoughts turn to his his family, to his brothers. Look at verse 27. I beg you, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. Warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. The point here, Jesus' message to the Pharisees isn't about the, the sincerity or lack of sincerity of this man's concern for his family, nor is it about the possibility of anyone from the dead, Lazarus or someone else, returning in order to warn people. No, the point is Abraham's answer. Look at verse 29. But Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. They have Moses. They have prophets. They should listen to them. And when, when the rich man objects, he says, no, they, they, won't, they won't do that. But if you send someone from the dead, they will certainly listen to someone who rose from the dead. Abraham says, listen, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. So here's Jesus. Here's Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and he's saying, listen, you need to listen to Moses and the prophets. He, this is what he's been telling them all along. You need to listen. I am God's Messiah. I am the one who has come, uh, the one who is, who, whose birth was foretold by the prophets, born of a virgin, right? Born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, descended from King David, preceded by the forerunner. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He preached good news to the poor but they weren't listening to Moses or to the prophets and they would not believe. And you know what? They would not believe even when he rose from the dead. They were like that, that weed infested soil in the parable of the sower. They were so consumed by loving the stuff of this life that it choked out even the possibility of coming to the Messiah. They would not, they could not receive God's Messiah. And so Jesus calls them to step back, to think again, to measure their life from a different perspective than they've been measuring it. And I think he would, he would call us to do the same. I think that he would, he, he would call us to, to put aside the, the love of the stuff of this life and to instead give ourselves fully to pursuing our Savior. I think he would call us to, to, to look at, to evaluate how we are evaluating our lives, to, to take a close look at how we measure our lives. 
Are we doing it from the, from the perspective of this world, from the success and the failures that we might experience? I mean, Jesus isn't saying, you know, don't follow someone who's successful, just pick a loser and emulate them. That's, that, that's not what he's saying. Well, what he's saying is find someone who is living for eternity and follow in their footsteps. It's the measuring stick that needs to change. We've got to begin to look at our lives and look at our situations and our circumstances and begin to, to measure them from the perspective of eternity. You, know, you, you look at these two men. Would we not tend to agree with the Pharisees if we saw the one man living a, a, an apparently righteous life, living in wealth, living in luxury, uh, buried well, and then, man, there is a guy who had God's blessing on his life. And would we not be tempted to look at Lazarus, at his suffering and his pain, his abject poverty, the difficulties that he faced, and think, man, that guy does not have God's blessing. He does not have God's blessings on his life. He didn't have enough faith, Lazarus. He didn't have enough faith to speak into existence that prosperous life that God wants for us all. Yeah, that might not be it. We've got to take into account eternity. We want to shape our lives, not according to the measuring stick of this life and of this world, but rather we want to shape our lives according to the viewpoint from the perspective of heaven. You know, it's a big ask to ask us to live our lives for eternity. It really is. It's, it's all you have, right? Your, your life, it's, it's a sum of who you are. It's, it's you. It's, it's your kids. It's your stuff. It's your future. It's, it's your past. It's all of you. That's a big ask. And yet, the one who asks it is the one who gave it all to redeem us. It is the one who who went to the cross in order to pay the debt for our sin. And, and this morning, as, as we close out our time in worship, we are going to have opportunity to remember the cross, to remember the Savior's death in our place as we celebrate communion together. This is a gift that he has given to us. It is something that he has given to us to cause us to remember. Hey, remember what he said. He said, hey, do this as often as you come together to remember my death until I come. And so until he comes, let it be today, Lord, huh? Uh, but until he comes, we will remember his death. And so it, it, the worship team is gonna return. Come on up, guys. And as we return to a time of worship, I'll invite you to come to the table. There's two in the front and one in the back to take one of the nested pairs of cups. In the bottom, there's a little nugget of bread. In the top, there's a little bit of juice. And, and in partaking of these elements to remember 
the reality, the fact of his death in our place. That's what it was about. He, he gave this to his disciples. It, that night in which he was arrested, as he's sharing dinner with his disciples, he gave them bread and he said, take and eat this. This is my body broken for you. And later that same evening, he gave them the cup and he said, take and drink this. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. I encourage you as you partake of this, remember the reality. Take that little nugget of bread in your hands and feel its reality because the Savior truly did go to the cross for you. As you, as you taste the juice, as you, as you feel the sweetness of it in your mouth, there's real juice there. He really did pour out his blood, his life to pay for our sin. It's not just a fiction, a pleasant fiction that we believe, but it's a reality that he embraced so that we might be purchased. It's a reality that moves my heart and should move each of our hearts to grateful surrender. He can never ask too much. Father, I thank you for this morning, for time together, for your word, for an opportunity to remember your great love for us, shown to us upon the cross. For an opportunity to yet again surrender ourselves completely to you. Lord, to pledge our lives for your kingdom, our living, for your purposes. We give ourselves to you, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name.